Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Greg Soden, and I am delighted to welcome Rob Harvilla to the podcast. On this episode, Rob and I talk about the brand new book, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. The book discusses the magical decade in which I grew up and dives deep on the songs that defined my most formative years. From the Cranberries, to Tool, to Metallica, to Hole, to Nirvana, to Soundgarden, to Fugazi, Shania Twain, and Weezer, this book and its complimentary podcast are a triumph in musical commentary, in my opinion. I've loved Rob's work for a long time now, and it was a real thrill to connect and have this conversation. Find Rob's book, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, and the podcast of the same name wherever you get books and podcasts. Please enjoy this conversation with Rob Harvilla. Rob Harvilla, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your book on New Books Network in music. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. So, Rob, I am wondering if we can just start off by having you tell the listeners out there a little bit about who you are and what you do. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I host a podcast called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. Uh, It started in the fall of 2020. And uh, just recently here in November of 2023, I, I put out a book, like a companion book. Uh, the show is like, you know, one song, one special guest per episode. I write, you know, word for word and recite I, sort of a monologue uh, essay on the song in question. And then I interview somebody about it. And so the book is sort of a compilation of those essays sort of remixed, you know, scrambling up the songs, getting them in conversation with each other, a lot of new stuff as well. But, you know, it's just it's definitely a nostalgia-based podcast to start, but I, it's gone in some really unexpected directions for me. It's lasted a lot longer than I thought it would. We are up now to, I think, 110 songs. We're going to do 120 probably total. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just been a thrill. You know, I've never done a podcast before, any kind of audio thing. And just the feedback I've been getting, right? Like the emails, the DMs, you know, and it's mostly people just talking to me about their favorite songs of the 90s and their memories and stuff like this. But it's just a really gratifying, you know, experience for me. Yeah. You know, I know you primarily as the host of 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, the podcast. I've listened to your podcast now for a couple of years, and I really enjoy what you've always done. And, you know, before we... I'm just curious about your creative process for the writing because it's so yeah. intense. And I know that you have a long <laughs> history of as a career as a writer, yeah. so the writing might be um, a little, you know, come naturally to you because it's it's in line with what your career has been for years. But tell me a little bit about your creative process because this is kind of a behemoth. You know what I mean? It's a big deal. <laughs> it is for sure a behemoth. You know, I... 
I've been a professional critic, you know, editor, writer for 20 plus years. You know, I graduated college in 2000s, you know, got a job in an alt weekly here in Columbus, you know, and I've worked primarily, I've worked at a bunch of different places, websites, papers, et cetera, but it's, I've been a rock critic, music critic, basically, you know, for 20, 25 years. And I, um, Joined the Ringer when it launched in 2016, you know, and again, you know, I'm just, I'm reviewing albums, interviewing people, doing features, stuff like that. But I, my concern always with my criticism, you know, if I sit down to write like a Lana Del Rey review, like, first mm -hmm. of all, I feel like I, I tend toward sort of convoluted, you know, overlong sentences, you know, like all these parentheses and semicolons, etc. Like I just, I, I got too many adverbs, man. And the yeah. other thing that I worried about <laughs> was that I think it's easy. It was easy for me in rock criticism to fall into this trap of only writing for other rock critics Right. Like just assuming a lot of knowledge. And so I'd write a thousand words about Lana Del Rey, but I would you would have to know every detail of Lana Del Rey's career up to that point. And there's all these in jokes mm -hmm. and sort of arcane specialized rock critic language, you know, and like my mother in law, you know, who's really smart and really well read, would read what I wrote. She's like, I really liked what you wrote. I'm like, oh, thank you. And she's like, I didn't really understand any of it, but it was it was, it was, it was very well written. And so I I think there were a lot of things that were immediately different to me about writing this show. But the one thing that I wanted from the onset, and it helped that I had to read these things out loud, is like I wanted the writing to be simpler. I wanted it to be more conversational, even if it's not a conversational. And I wanted it to be accessible you know, to everybody, you know, mm -hmm. you didn't have to be, you didn't have to know all these, this rock critic jargon. You didn't have to know the full history of whatever artist I'm talking about. Like, you know, there's, I can bring some of that to bear, you know, and that's helpful. You know, the critical analysis part is part of it for sure. But I, I do want, I do want it to have a wider appeal. And I did, you know, like just, if you were alive in the nineties, these are the songs you remember and like, you remember them. You all have your own personal memories attached to them. Maybe you love them. Maybe you hated them. You know, maybe you were always curious about them, but didn't, you know, never got into them. And then you want to know more now. I, I just, I just wanted it to have a much broader appeal. And I think, you know, they always say like writers should read their stuff out loud because that's where you'll realize how convoluted yes. uh, your writing is. And so just being forced to, to recite everything I write into a microphone on a zoom with like other people on it, you know, I think this sort of kept me honest and I think changed in a fundamental way, the way I write and the way that I'm, you know, conveying information to people. Yeah. You know, I'm an English teacher and whenever my students yeah. write creative uh, fiction and short stories, I have that I put them in editing groups where they have to read the story out loud to a person across from them. Oh and God, they come horrifying. up with it is and they come <laughs> up with so many edits and uh, suggestions for each other, but also realize where the heart of their story actually is and figure out what they need to take out, what new directions they need to go to. It's part of the editing process, you know, so I totally sure. resonate with that. Um, and, you know, I'm curious about your list process for identifying what songs originally went into the podcast, but then as the podcast has grown far beyond 60 songs, tell me a little bit about like identifying the main things. What are the criteria that you put in place for yourself to choose the songs? 
Yeah, when we set out, it's like, all right, 60 songs, you know, 60 was arbitrarily chosen, you know, because 30 didn't feel like enough and 90 felt like too many. Like, that's as, as, as clear as I can put that. Uh, yeah, so you, you open up a Google Doc, right, and you just write down a bunch of songs, you know, and then you sort of informally group them into like, oh, we have to do this. Oh, it would be cool to do this. You know, oh, like nobody else cares about this song but me. But like this is I, I this one is for me. Right. You know, and so the, the list of songs that you have to do is what, you know, like the Notorious B.I.G., Tupac, Nirvana, you know, of course, like, you know, you can you can make a list with like 15 or 20. Like, how are you going to talk about the 90s and not talk about this song type situation? And then there's like a lower tier of like really, really big deals, like you could probably get away with it, but like, you know, and so you're just sort of ranking them informally just by you know, in, in, in importance, you know? And, and so as we got closer to 60s, we got closer to the end, you know, the, the, the Google Doc kept growing, right? The list of songs that we could potentially do kept growing. And it was like, holy crap, like, you know, I, I, I want to keep going. You know, and they were nice enough to let us. And so, you know, first of all, we had 30, so now it's 90. And then that's not enough. And so we had 30 again, and now it's 120. And as we do that, you know, we do try. It's totally arbitrary week to week what song I do, right? These are mm. not ranked in any order, you know, by importance, you know, by, you know, it's, it's not a ranked list where, like, the last episode is going to be the best song of the 90s or whatever. Like, it's... There's also, you know, I'm just trying to mix it up between genre, you know, between year within the 90s, just because, you know, 1991 feels very different from 99, etc. And just sort of keep things fresh and hopefully unexpected for people and also for me. You know, if I wake up one day and decide, you know, that I just want to think about, whoop, there it is for a week, like I can do that. Yeah. And so... I think that, but we tried to hold out, you know, like a few ringers, you know, like Nirvana always was looming, right? Like Smells Like Teen Spirit was always looming. And for a long time, I thought it would be the last episode of the show. Right. But then that got to feel like too expected. You know, I, I think that's what people thought was going to happen. So, well, it's like, well, it's... Do something surprising and do it like the start of a season. You know, I don't really think it was like episode 91 or whatever. And so I, yeah, it's, I still have this Google Doc. I was looking at it last night. I was stressing out over, you know, I have 10 spots left, you know, and mm. I have all these songs I still want to do, you know, and some are huge, massive hits. Some are more personal, more important to me, but I want to retain that balance like all the way to the end. Gotcha. Well, and you got to interview Courtney Love, which was uh, pretty sweet for that Nirvana episode, too. Holy moly. Yeah, I that was wild. You know, that's, I think, pretty, you know, objectively the most surreal thing that's ever happened to me. And she liked career. you. Like, I think that she, she really did. enjoys your podcast and she seemed to have a genuinely good time chatting with you. That episode was so cool for me as well as a listener. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was wild. You know, I had done Hole, right? I had done Doll Parts earlier, and somebody had passed that episode along to her. And so she reached out, we started talking, you know, and I, I not in a billion years would I ever been like, hey, you want to talk about Nirvana? Like, you know, just that's the presumption of that, you know, how personal that obviously is to her. You know, I, it's, she, she sort of brought it up at one point. You know, I told her, I think, 
that I was thinking of doing the Nirvana episode soon. I just I figured I would give her a heads up, right? And she's like, and then she didn't really respond. But then a couple of weeks later, she's like, hey, you know, should I be the guest? And I was like, holy crap, of course, of course. And it, yeah, yeah, she we talked for like two hours, you know, and we talked is maybe not the way even to phrase it. Like, you know, you just it's you just want to to just let her rip right you know exactly the way that her mind works and the connection she's makes and the tangents right you know like i'm prone to tangents myself as you may be aware (laughs) but like this is on another level and it's awesome you know just to see you know the way she weaves you know songs that she loved as a kid you know and suddenly very personal very painful stories in some cases like just the way it's all connected in her head you just have to follow along you know and she will get there you know even if it takes you know an hour and a half like it was just it was such a cool and unexpected experience yeah well and i know that some of your scripts you've uh you've mentioned and written in some places i think in the acknowledgments at the end of the book where some of your scripts were um ten thousand words and so <laughs> which is which is wild i mean it's like uh it's a full piece and yeah. But then in the book, you trim the songs that you have selected down into sections that you've broken into themes and then weave the story from band to band to band. So you can cover yeah. eight or 10 songs in one chapter instead of one song on an episode. How did right. you identify the ones that kind of fit together as far as the uh, the storytelling goes within the chapters? Yeah, it's like the scripts. The first episode of the show was Alanis Morissette, and like that script was maybe 2,000 words. You know, the the first 10, I think there were only two 10,000 word episodes, and Nirvana was one, and the other one arbitrarily was Pantera. I have no idea how that I, interesting <laughs> is right. I mean, I, I can't claim, at least in high school or whatever, to have been a huge Pantera fan. I was coming to them pretty fresh. But, I, you know, something about the enthusiasm of that, you know, I, I've managed to pull it back a little bit to now it's around eight, you know, 8,500, which is still way too much. But, yeah, it's like when I set out to write a book, I have 500,000 words, literally, of source material. And it's like, this is going to be easy. But, of course, like, I got to compress that into an 80,000, you know, 100,000 tops word book and so i just it, the process started with me just rereading the scripts you know finding the parts that i liked you know and just sort of seeing how they fit together and how i can get these songs in conversation with each other so there was a chapter I, what did i call it i i, I <laughs> i've like, got the book I, right here <clears throat> the chapter you know about like artists who whose music feels like other universes like just mm. different universes and you're, you're like a tourist you know listening to outcast you know listening to missy elliott listening to the wu-tang clan listening to mob deep you know or listening to bjork right and how it, it feels like they just sketch out an entirely new universe for you but you sort of with the Wu-Tang Clan, right? Like, I, I, it's a matter of being respectful of, like, these people come from somewhere, like, really concrete, you know? And the fact that I have no experience with where they come from, you know, I just I sort of want to be respectful about what I know and what I don't know, you know, when it comes to this sort of thing. And, like, also in that chapter is the pulp song Common People, which is one mm. of, you know, my favorite songs. And that song is about, you know, like, a rich lady you know, slumming it with poor people, like cosplaying as a poor person, 
you know, and, and the song is from his perspective, and like he's an actual poor person, and he's like, you know, everybody hates a tourist, especially when they think it's all just a laugh, you know, and and so I that chapter is sort of about the way that music can be transportive, you know, and can show you new perspectives and entirely new universes. But, you know, it's just, it's a matter of holding in your head, you know, again, what you know and what you don't know and just sort of having respect, you know, for the fact that like, this is, you know, you're, you're inhabiting this universe for the space of a song, but like, this is where they live. This is where they grew up, you know, and just the differences there. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, this book, I know that you uh, you you did a recent live event to launch the book with uh, Yasi Salak from Bandsplain. And it was a really great yeah. it was a really great conversation that you two had because you were talking about why this era matters to you. And you're you simply yeah. said it's because it's when I grew up. And so for me, that resonated a lot because I discovered music watching Woodstock 94 on MTV <laughs> when I was 11. Oh, all right. Um, living in the living in the suburbs of St. Louis. And yeah. it was uh, a really powerful moment for me because I went from, uh, you know, that into Dookie, into that uh, that Deadeye Dick song that was on the oh, Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. New Age Girl. New Age, New Age Girl. Girl. Uh, and yes. then the Cranberries. Um, yes. Zombie. And so Zombie is actually one of my favorite sections of your entire book because of your attention mm. on Dolores O'Riordan's life and how amazing yeah. that song was. So for me, all of this is just the absolute perfect time. <clears throat> so I think if people are 40 or, you know, 37 <laughs> to like 45, yeah. it, it's a, it's just such a perfect book because the ones that resonated so much with me were Metallica, Pantera, Real Big Fish, Fagazi, Green Day, yeah. Cranberry, yeah. Soundgarden, you know, Rage, Weezer, Tool, Sunny Day Real Estate, and Blink-182. Awesome. And so those were like my <laughs> sections of the book that I honed in on. And I was just curious, like what your thoughts are on, on like those particular sections and like what you feel like that says about me as someone who like discovers music at Woodstock 94 and then like fits so perfectly within the demographics of this book. Like, what is that? Uh, what is that? You know, what thought does that bring to mind for you? Sure. You had like the pay-per-view. How did you watch Woodstock 1994? It was, like it was on one. MTV. Really? I watched, like uh, just I watched normal sections. MTV. Okay. Yep. All right. I watched sections of it. I I, rem I vividly remember watching Metallica play Enter Sandman and wow. thinking okay. that Kirk Hammett was like the coolest looking person I've ever seen it's in my cool. entire life. Okay. And it was just a, a such a it's just burned into my brain, you know. That's right. That's so cool. I thought that that was like a super pricey pay-per-view. Maybe I'm thinking Woodstock 99. It wasn't uh, was like, like a full broadcast as far as I remember. Right. It was okay. just, you know, uh, selected tracks, sure. I think. But it was so amazing yeah. for me. Yeah, but to, to your question, like, what I have realized over the course of doing this is the reason the 90s are so important to me is I was a teenager in the 90s. I went to high school. I went to college. You know, and I do believe with all my heart that like the music you loved when you were a teenager is the music you'll love most in your life, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so I that's and that's held true for me. You know, I have the same kind of stories, you know, about hearing Longview, you know, somebody's got a copy of Dookie, you know, and he's driving me around and I hear Longview for the first time, you know, and then like it seems like a few months later. You know, I'm at the Blossom Music Center, 
you know, in the Cleveland area, it's outdoor amphitheater at a $5 Green Day show. There's like a grass fight and it's like this idyllic teenage memory. And like anybody who was a teenager in that area at that time, like seems like they were at that show and they remember that show. Like that was our personal Woodstock 94, you know, and I was an alt rock kid. And so it totally resonates with me what you're saying. Like that list of bands was my list of bands, right? You add like Pearl Jam, Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, you know, yeah. I, pavements eventually, weirdly. And, and so I, yeah, it's just the feedback that I get, you know, the messages that I receive, you know, overwhelmingly it is people about my age. I'm 45. You know, so like you said, late 30s, early mid 40s, you know, that's that's the sweet spot for a thing like this, you know, because even something, you know, like even music that you didn't think that you liked at the time, like I didn't necessarily listen to like the Spice Girls by mm -hmm. choice, you know, at that time. But I heard that song a billion times because, you know, it was on in the in the my college dining hall. Yeah. Right. As, I, as I'm eating my, you know, swirl ice cream cone or whatever. And so I have all these memories associated with the Spice Girls, even if I think I don't, you know, like I, I try not to overdo the nostalgic aspect of this, but it's undeniable sort of as a foundation, you know, that some of my most vivid memories from this time are also the most mundane. It's just me driving around with my friends, you know, listening to Pretty Hate Machine you know, yep. or the Dave Matthews band or whatever. And it just, the, the, the way that music for me, and I think for a lot of other people can make, make mundane circumstances feel spectacular. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just such a, a magical thing. Yeah. Your uh, description of you being in the car, listening to Dave Matthews crash into me was uh, a really wonderful part of the book because it's just okay. the power of what these moments can do in the yeah. lives of a group of friends and how everybody's just kind of like, Oh, maybe we'll, maybe somebody is like uh, going to have a little cry right now. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> it's uh, really powerful, but right. you know, something else that really stands out to me is how present so much of this music still is like in the last year i have Ooh. seen metallica and pantera live together i've seen yeah. 182 live i saw sunday <laughs> real estate live a couple months ago for the first Ooh, time Jeff. ever well, good, and good. so so much of this is still so relevant and these shows are selling out you know what i mean like people the right. from from like our little demographic i feel like are still going to shows and introducing it now to their kids and it's like living on it's not fading away no it's it's in some ways it's cyclical right like you know the the, the 90s i don't like to think like this but like I, I try to remember being a teenager in the 90s and how far away like the 60s and 70s felt to me yeah. then there's that mike watt song against the 70s you know that eddie vetter sings you know and it's like warning against 70s nostalgia you know kids from the day should defend themselves against the 70s to realize that like the 90s are like that now you know the 90s are older now than the 70s were then obviously yep. and it doesn't feel like that but it is that way but i i do think if I try and separate, you know, again, that I was a teenager and that's all that matters of it, I do think that the 90s does hang together as a cultural force, as a musical force in a different way. You know, the 2000s don't feel quite as distinct to me. The 2010s don't, you know, and yeah. I, I aesthetically... As you say, you know, like there's the Dave Matthews band is still touring, you know, and in some cases it's a nostalgia thing, right? Like Hootie and the Blowfish 
we'll have a festival in Mexico, you know, with like the gin blossoms, fastball, you know, and five to 10 other, you know, bands you remember, like Dead Eye Dicks probably touring somewhere, right? You know, like probably. Some, in some cases, in some cases, it's just, you know, the 90s bands that are still around become like now they play 90s music, right? Like the genre, you know, the distance between like a sound garden and a bush and an REM, you know, are collapsing. And it's like, oh, those are all bands from the 90s. That's awesome. You know, like I've seen tons of festivals like that where I see like the offspring and live and Bush, you know, play within a half hour of each other. And like, it, it wouldn't have made sense to me at the time because those were different bands in the 90s, you know, with what I felt were anywhere were different audiences and different vibes, you know, but the farther we get from the 90s, you know, the more, you know, all the bands that are still around from the 90s become just 90s music. And yeah. it is still totally prevalent. You know, you hear it, you know, in music that's being made today, you know, like people talk about Olivia Rodrigo, of course, like the pop punk of it all. You know, that's that's a very 90s and early 2000s sort of vibe. You know, the 90s does feel present, you know, to a larger degree than I, I ever thought would be possible, you know, 30 years out. Amazing. OK, so something came up in the book that I had me just cackling. Uh, with Glee, uh, and that is the presence of your citation of the book In Defense of Ska by my friend Aaron Carnes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to give you the moment to, uh, you know, wax about Ska momentarily, uh, because I was so happy that Aaron's book was cited in your book and made me just totally joyful. It's a great book, and I'm, I'm. That's cool. That's cool. You guys are friends. I mean, my my credentials here, and I never get tired of telling anybody this, is that I was in a ska band, yes. my freshman year of college called Scantily Plaid. Nice. Uh, Scantily with a with a K, like ska. It, it was. It's a great name. It wasn't my name. I played bass in a ska band, you know, out of my freshman year dorm. You know, and we played like three, four shows total. Like we were quite frankly not very good. We did not last. You know, we broke up and then everyone else in the band reformed without me as an emo band. And mm -hmm. I was like, well, that sucks. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so, I, yes, I, Scott's a good example of something that feels, even if this is wrong, it feels like it only could have happened in the 90s, right? Like the 90s very specifically was this time when like everyone would get obsessed with like ska or neo swing, right? You know, like yeah. the cherry pop and daddy's moments. You know, just the randomness of that, like just the baffling and delightful randomness of that was really cool. But Scott, you know, I what I remember now is like that's 96, 97, you know, and, and sort of with the passing of, of Kurt Cobain, like grunge has sort of peaked, you know, and faded away a little bit. You know, even a band like Pearl Jam is sort of pulling back from being wanting to be the biggest band in the world. You know, Green Day is a big deal. Pop Punk is a big deal. <clears throat> but, like, there was a vacuum to some extent in 1996, 1997. And what we thought was going to fill it was Electronica, mm -hmm. right? Like, with, you know, the Chemical Brothers, Prodigy, et cetera. Like, these are the new rock stars, like dance music, electronic music. And that was true to an extent, and I love that stuff. But, like, what sprung up instead, like, semi-organically was... <clears throat> you know, I, I no doubt real yep. big fish, as you said, like the mighty, mighty Boston's who'd been touring forever by that point, 
but suddenly they have this big hit, you know, with the impression that I get, you know, which it's, it, it felt very random, you know, and I know that there's an undercurrent, you know, of music industry machinations or what, like, I don't want to be naive, but like, it did feel at the time, like anything could happen, you know, and any weird, you know, obscure style of music could suddenly become huge overnight, if only for a few months. And like, that was a cool feature of the nineties for me. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. Um, so there's another band I want to know about because this is one of the most transformative records that came out for me in middle school. And I got it from a friend of mine and I borrowed yeah. it and I conveniently never gave it back. And that is yeah. Tool Enema. Oh my God. Is that the best Tool <laughs> record ever released in your view? I think so. Yeah. I would have to say, yeah. It's so funny because I... Tool is the band that I, one of the 90s bands that I listen to the most now, like just for pleasure, quote unquote. Like not, it's not any kind of research. You know, I did a Tool episode. I did Stink Fist forever ago and it was awesome. But like, I don't need to listen to them for work or for research anymore, but I still put Anima on all the time. And so I, you know, I've seen them a few times. I saw them very recently, well, very recently, meaning like a couple of years ago, but they played sort of arenas and I went with my buddy and I had a, a I had a blast you know like lateralist right is a great record as well yeah. like undertow is a pretty good record but anima you know I just I'm thinking about like 46 and 2 oh my right? god you know like eulogy. that's the jam for me eulogy there we go say yeah like like just just starting to even try to list off the songs on that record like yeah I think that's easily the best record tool record and yeah tool far and away from any other bands that I've talked about is, is the band that I keep returning to just instinctively, you know, and I don't know what that says about me. That's a little disturbing, but that's, that's <laughs> the way it is. Did you get into <laughs> Pussifer or a perfect circle or empty void or any of the other projects from the uh, people in tool? Just a perfect circle, you know, and I probably both those records, it's just two, right? Like I, a little bit, but, you know, that was mostly based on the singles, right? Like yeah. three, I forget what. What's three Libras and Judith, I think. Yeah. Yes. Those, I mean, I, I saw those guys live. They came to Columbus as well. And that was really, really cool. And I love that band Failure. Oh, yeah. The know? drummer's think, in Perfect Circle, right? Right. Yeah. So I, I knew there was some kind of connection there. But Pussifar, I've never gotten into you know, like I, I guess I should, you know, but I, I've never gotten any deeper than a perfect circle, but I've seen those guys a few times as well. And like that. Yeah. Great. The, yeah. uh, the thing that I got into about perfect circle the most was that Josh freeze from the vandals was their drummer That's for right. a long time. And yeah, I was yeah. like a huge vandals fan. Like I went to see the police one time with sting when Josh freeze was playing with sting wow. as his drummer. And I wore a vandals live fast diarrhea t-shirt and I was standing against the barricade and Josh freeze actually saw me. And it was like, he <laughs> just started laughing. Cause there's this guy in a vandals t-shirt with nitro That's records rad. and like lime green across the back of the shirt, standing against the barricade at a sting show. And it was, a uh, a really good moment where I was very proud of myself for going and supporting one of my favorite musicians uh, in one of his uh, other projects that happened to just be a way, way, way more famous singer. <laughs> I knew, did he ever play with Guns N' Roses? Yeah, he did. He played with uh, yeah, Guns okay. N' Roses, Devo, uh, The Vandals, Perfect Circle, um, okay. Nine Inch Nails. Now he's in That's the Foo right. Fighters, of course. That guy was in oh. everything. 
Yeah, that's I that's I knew him primarily as like, yeah, the guy who's in everything, like you say, like he's just he's the hired gun. Yeah, exactly. Um, tell me a little bit about your uh your collaboration and collegiality and friendship with Yasi Salak because I love her podcast Bands Plane too. Yeah, me too. I mean, we started at the same time, you know, or roughly the same time Bands Plane and 60 Songs. You know, we were both part of this initiative within Spotify called Music and Talk. The idea being that like a podcast would have songs embedded in it, like full songs. And so you talk for a while. It's like, oh, now we're going to listen to a song and then you play the song. You know, and the way it worked for me is the song came at the end. Like it was sort of like cheating. But what I what drew me to her show, you know, immediately was the fact that like the first episode is Steely Dan. Right. And so she's mm-hmm. talking to a guy, you know, and a guy's trying to talk her into liking Steely Dan. But then like they can stop and play reeling in the ears in full you know, and then talk about like what he likes about it. You know, like I really dug that format and I really dug just how knowledgeable and how funny, you know, and how collegial Yasi is, you know, yeah. and the fact that you can just sit and listen to her and her guest talk about, you know, PJ Harvey for eight hours. You know, yep. these are just deep, the deepest possible dives, you know. So there's an element of that show that I love that's like this super like nerding out or whatever that, you know, I know I can picture Yasi there with her 100 page Google Doc. <laughs> yeah. Right. Where she knows everything and like she can read off like Joe Strummer's, you know, grades in elementary yeah. school or whatever. But also that it's it's also so funny and so fresh you know, and I it, it 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 does the thing that I aspire to do with my own show, which is to move between again, you know, like deep dive sort of rock critic stuff, you know, and heavy heavy research, but it doesn't feel heavy, you know, it has a lightness to it and it has a joy to it and an enthusiasm, you know, that's accessible even if you don't know anything about The Clash or if you know everything about The Clash, right? Like that's always the magic trick is is to, to try and appeal to people who know nothing about a topic and everything about the topic without alienating either side, you know? And what's so cool to me about that show is that it's it's fulfilling whether you know nothing about somebody or everything. My uh, my favorite non Rob Harvilla bandsplain episode is the Weezer one <laughs> with uh, Barry from Joyce Manor. I thought that episode was absolutely uh, amazing. And that's a rad. I love Joyce Manor so much too. So yeah, you're absolutely right. That's awesome. Rob, how are you uh, consuming music these days? More than ever? <laughs> less than ever? Like, what's your what's your listening habits? Because I find myself in this weird place at forty where I'm listening to less music than ever, like on a record, but I'm seeing more live shows than ever. Like, I'm getting all of my music live these days. It feels like, and I'm wondering if your listening habits have adjusted over the years. That's wild. I'm jealous of you, honestly. You know, I'm here in Ohio. You know, I got three kids, including a three year old. I'm not getting out to shows, you know, with the frequency that I was, you know, when I was in New York City, you know, in childless, right? And it was my job ostensibly to go to shows. And so it's not, you know, if I get to a show once a month, I'm I'm doing awesome. You know, and it's really not that. You know, COVID obviously was was super intense, you know, and we were locked down a little, you know, the show was born in lockdown, you know, in 2020, you know, and and I, I do think that that's not a coincidence. You know, that I just from the depths of my office here, you know, just reaching out to people, you know, suddenly became a priority for me. I think mm-hmm. I'm listening to the same quantity of music, you know, and I just I'm just I just have Spotify primarily on all the time. 
right? Like what's different, what what I sort of track is like what kind of music I'm listening to, you know, like before, you know, I was listening to primarily new music, you know, and, and it would be my job, you know, when Taylor Swift's Midnight's comes out, you know, at 12.01 a.m., you know, <laughs> Thursday into Friday, like it'd be my job to sit there and listen to it five times immediately and then write a thousand words on my initial impressions or whatever, right? Like the yeah. difference now is that I'm listening to music primarily that's from 30 years ago, that's from my childhood, you know, and sometimes I'm coming to something fresh, but sometimes it's something that I've listened to a billion times and I'm trying to find new things in it. Like the challenge for me now is, is not living entirely in the 90s, right. right? You know, and like it's just quote unquote keeping up with new music as a farce, you know, at any age, but certainly at my age. But like, I, I don't ever want to totally lapse, you know, into the comfortable music of my past. But this is where I spend the vast majority of my time now, like understandably, but still like I, I'm, I'm tr I, I try and maintain a well-rounded you know, diets, but, you know, it's unavoidably, you know, I'm, I'm living in 1994 a goodly amount of the time. Yeah. So, Rob, you've got this great book, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s, out now, 110 episodes out of 120 done for the podcast. Where do you see yourself going in the next, uh, you know, 12 to 24 months? Oh, my God. I It's so, I, I got to figure this out, right? I want to do another show. Absolutely. I am going to do another show. I'm not exactly sure what that is yet. You know, it's like it's become a joke, right? That like I, I keep extending the show just because I, there's other songs I want to talk about, you know, and there's still I still have a lot of enthusiasm for this. And, you know, the feedback I'm getting is really cool and really gratifying. And to some extent, there seems to be an audience for this. But like I got to find something new to do. And I'm not sure what that is yet. You know, obviously, we've talked about like the 80s or the aughts. You know, and I'm I'm really curious about that. And I'm curious how the show changes when it doesn't have the foundation again of me being a teenager and then being the music you love, you know, like more than anything, right? Like how it changes things, you know, if I don't have as personal, like an adolescent, you know, coming of age sort of connection to it. You know, if I do the 2000s, like, you know, that's I'm a young, you know, I'm in my 20s or whatever. It's but yeah. uh, how does it change? And how do my stories change? And how does the mix between like critical analysis and personal stories change? Like, I'm, I'm really curious about all that. But I I'm, it, it makes me nervous to leave behind, you know, what is objectively, you know, the coolest thing you know, the coolest feeling thing that I've ever done and the most feedback I've ever gotten. And like, they let me write a book, man, you know, like they've yeah. never done that before. And so it's, it's, there's a leaving the womb type quality to this, right? Where like, I don't want to do this forever. And I don't want to wear out my welcome. You know, I don't want it to grow stale, all of that. But like, it's, it's just, I, I, it's hard to stop, yeah. you know, just because I still feel the enthusiasm, which is pretty shocking to me, you know, 110 episodes in, I would not have guessed on episode mm -hmm. one that I'd still be doing this, but it's, it's a joy to still be doing this, but just finding the right place to stop and yeah. finding the next thing to do immediately, you know, that's proving a little elusive, but I'll figure it out. Yeah. You know, I've got this, uh, I, I'm obsessed with the band Dillinger 4, and I've heard you mention yeah. them before. And I was yeah. like, wouldn't that be sweet if somebody did a song-by-song -song Dillinger 4 podcast? Because I do a song-by-song -song podcast, also like a song exploder thing. Yes, you and do. 
I love that I, I obsessed with somebody doing a song exploder about Dillinger four. Uh, but I also thought about a band like Dillinger four, who has a tiny discography over a very long career. And I'm like, man, wouldn't that be right. crazy if somebody did like a limited discography, uh, song by song series, where it was like two records or less. And you just like examine bands that have tiny discographies, but have been around for a long time kind of thing. And I was like, yeah. oh, man. Uh, so I'm just like, bra- I just like had these like little random brainstorms of podcasts. Like the other day I was at a Sabres game and I was like, you know what would be a good podcast <laughs> for somebody to interview every single organist who plays for an NHL oh, team? Oh, that would be great. You know I what I mean? It, of course. So just keep, uh, definitely keep um, some ideas flowing on the podcast because uh, I, I love your work. Um, and well, I thanks, hope man. you keep doing shows forever. Um, Rob, what a pleasure. Uh, I love your book. I love your podcast. Thanks, it's man. such a thrill to connect. Um, I'm hoping everybody out there listening will uh, go check out the the table of contents in 60 songs that explain the 90s, because I bet a lot of people out there listening are really going to connect with a lot of these songs and uh, giving your show and giving your book a chance, I think, is uh, would be a really wonderful um experience for for listeners out there and rob where can people find you if they want to learn more or follow along with what you're doing well you better do it quick but i am still on twitter you know against my better against my better judgment i'm still on twitter at plain old harvilla right h-a-r-v-i-l-l-a i am on instagram as well that's rob harvilla you know and and just the ringer you know, I've been with the Ringer since it launched in 2016. It's the longest I've ever had one job. You know, that's where, you know, the 60 songs comes out of, you know, out of Spotify. Uh, but yeah, you can find me there. And uh, thank you so much, man. This has been awesome. And this is really kind of you to say. And and I'm, I'm jealous of all the shows that you're getting to go to. We got to yeah. talk now real quick about Eureka, Missouri, though. Oh, right? dude, we got to. So we're going to just, uh, so if anybody out there doesn't want to hear about <laughs> us, talk about our, our youth, you can leave the interview now. But You can leave Rob, now. Dude, this is going to be, this is going to blow your mind. I was reading your book last night and it was like, you're writing about Eureka, Missouri and Sacred Heart going to school. And I grew up in Fenton across the Merrimack River from Sacred Heart Parish. And I went to church at that parish until I was like 10 or 11. I got confirmed at that parish. I went to the Monday night uh, religious education program there. And I just got to know your your backstory with uh, with the suburbs of St. Louis, because that legitimately blew my mind pretty wild dude i was born in cleveland but my parents moved to eureka i was like three or four mm-hmm. you know so this would have been 1981 1982 you know and like i don't have my firm memories start in like 84 85 right you know but i went to sacred hearts elementary school you know from first through fifth grade i i left we we moved back to cleveland the cleveland area middle of fifth grade but uh man it's like growing like what i remember are like collecting baseball cards watching mtv you know playing soccer. fenton kicked our asses in soccer all the time it's amazing (laughs) i just but but i remember fenton so vividly and i i don't remember the highway that you take to get to st louis proper like we'd only go there for like cardinals games or like blues games or stuff right but there's like a water park the wet willies right? 
<clears throat> that's correct. Wet Willies, you know, right on the highway. And I, I don't know if I ever actually went to Wet Willies, but I drove past it so many times. But like I it's in my memory, you know, and this is a very naive sort of rose colored. It's like a John Cougar Mellencamp song to me. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like just just, you know, the the the, the burbs, you know, the, the 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 suburbs of St. Louis and just listening to Jack Buck on the radio, you know, call Cardinals games, you know, and like all the tops, you know, and I've talked about this at some point on the show, like just the tops baseball cards, Donruss, Fleer from like 1985 to 89, you know, that was the sweet spot of collecting baseball cards. But like, that's, that's like my wonder years esque like rosy, you know, childhood memories yeah. are all from Eureka. And it's so wild to talk to somebody, you know, who was there also, how old are you? Okay. I'm 40. So I was okay, born you're a little younger. Yeah. I was born in high Ridge, Missouri. Uh, and which is another suburb of St. Louis, but then my parents moved to Fenton in 2000 or in, uh, in 1983 when they bought a brand, it was a brand new development. It was the sticks out there when you were living in Valley Park and, and Eureka, it oh, was yeah. the sticks. Um, it, and it was, yeah, it was unincorporated St. Louis County was where my parents new house was, but yeah, 44 is the highway that you're talking about. I 44 that okay, runs from, you. it runs across the state <laughs> of Missouri, but it ends in St. Louis and then it goes out past six flags out through Fenton and then down six to Springfield, flags, Missouri. Yes. And, uh, but yeah, wet willies is at the uh, intersection of 141 and 44 in a okay. old area called peerless park. Peerless Park sounds that's familiar. what that's what that little area where the McDonald's and the uh, Burger King and the Wet Willies was. It was just this tiny little zone called Peerless sure. Park. But if you went there now, you would 100 percent not recognize it. The bluff that Wet Willies was up on top of is still there. But Wet Willies was torn down a long time ago. Well, that's too bad, but probably but for the best. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, but I, I <laughs> it's so funny when you when it said sacred heart in eureka missouri because that is yeah. my entire life as well growing up and the fact that you came from there and i came from there and now here i am reading your book and then it says that it just completely like just shattered my reality last night yeah man that's it. that's that's lovely i do not run into many people with any other than six flags right the fact that six flags was there i think distinguishes eureka for people but like people you know not as you say not a not a big not a booming place necessarily but well I, it's where i grew up and i loved it and another little tidbit about that area there's a park right at the corner of 44 and 141 also right by sacred heart called booter park and in 1998 warped tour for some reason was what? held in valley park eureka fenton at that park right at the corner by your old parish. And so I saw uh Rancid, No Effects, Friends Ram, MXPX, uh, you know, No Use for a Name, all God. in that park right next to Sacred Heart Parish that you went to elementary school in. That is phenomenal. I am having yeah, that's tripping me out to even picture like no effects yep. being on the same plane of existence as my childhood. Catholic yeah. elementary school. That's a lot for me to process, quite frankly, yeah. but I'm sorry I missed that. If you Jesus. go on, uh, yeah, go to maps, go to Google Maps or something <laughs> and just type in Booter Park in Valley Park or Fenton or 
Eureka. I'm not sure exactly. I'm doing that right now. B-U-D-E-R. B-U-D-E-R. Oh, see, I was doing the double O. So that's, yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Moon Park, Missouri. Here we go. Yep. Yep. Yeah, man. That park. Okay. So if you look, if you zoom out a little bit and you go right across the river to where it says Valley Park and you go up, there should be a cross right north Uh where it says Valley Park. That is where the Sacred Heart, uh, parishes so it's literally right across the the merrimack river is where warp tour was held from the church that you uh went to school at when you were a kid that is wild as heck oh there's a sushi place in eureka now i don't know if i would necessarily i that, I, but I assure you that there is gentrification <laughs> going on in oh i'm sure what, right yeah that's that's very funny but yeah it's schnooks just the yep. name schnooks I know. Is a trigger for me. The, the grocery store, man. What a weird name for a grocery store. But it's like, yeah. And this is right where Times Beach is, right? Like, which is yep. the famous sort of, you know, abandoned yeah. super funds, you know, ecological disaster. Like there was a lot going on. Oh, dude. Yeah. And um down there <laughs> in uh in Times Beach, uh, it just basically turned into it was reclaimed totally by nature. So you drive past okay. there and it was like still abandoned, but there's just deer everywhere, and it just turned into like a a, well, uh, a nature zone where everybody got uh where all the animals just kind of took over so good luck to those deer yeah. i know i know um the water well i'm glad we got to chat about uh <laughs> about fenton and eureka yeah man that's Park. wild what yeah. a trippy experience well rob harvilla uh thank you so much for doing this with me what a pleasure congrats on the book congrats on the triumph of the podcast it's uh such a thrill man Thanks so much for having me, dude. This has been awesome. I really appreciate it.